Send your spirit, God, to open our hearts and our minds to your word and strengthen us to live according to your will. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. This year we observe the 150th anniversary of the publication of Charles Dickens' great little book, A Christmas Carol. When I was younger, I didn't think very much of A Christmas Carol, but the book has come to mean increasingly more to me as I've grown older. I think I disliked the story because the way it has been persistently retold and adapted in movies and television. Indeed, Scrooge McDuck pushed me over the edge. Then when I was around 40, a group of my faculty friends at the school where I taught celebrated Christmas by getting together to read the whole book in one sitting in a night. It's actually a short book and it's easy to do. We would alternate taking parts, some the narration, others the characters, and the whole affair turned out to be not only fun, but, well, inspiring. We repeated the party on and off for about a decade, and then when we went, when we all went our separate ways, I decided that I would reread A Christmas Carol on my own every December. This year, I cheated a bit and listened instead to the New York Public Library podcast where the British writer Neil Gaiman reads it on my drive up and down from home to here. But the impact of hearing it was really the same as reading it. The tale of Ebenezer Scrooge's conversion from avarice to generosity is a wonderful and really quite profound Christmas story. And what struck me this time was not any of the more familiar moments in the book. You know them. I wear the chains I forged in life. Are there no prisons? Are there no workhouses? Mankind was my business, and the immortal God bless us, everyone. But none of these really caught my attention this time. Instead, I was drawn to the little-known moment where the ghost of Christmas present comes to visit Scrooge. You may remember that this ghost shows Scrooge how the Cratchit family can joyfully celebrate Christmas even with their relative poverty and Tiny Tim's illness. But then immediately the ghost whisks Scrooge away from the Cratchit house, off to see how universal the celebration of Christmas is around the world, even under some very harsh conditions. In a coal mine, we see Christmas in a coal mine, we see it in a lighthouse, we see it aboard a ship at sea. As the narrator explains when they get to the ship, every man among them hummed a Christmas tune or had a Christmas thought or spoke below his breath to his companions of some bygone Christmas day with homeward hopes belonging to it. And every man on board, waking or sleeping, good or bad, had had a kinder word for another on that day than on any day in the year, and had shared to some extent in its festivities, and had remembered those he cared for at a distance, and had known that they delighted to remember him. As I listened to A Christmas Carol this December, I couldn't help thinking about my own childhood experiences of Christmas. 
Over the course of my working life in the church, I've come to love the anecdotes told by my clergy friends about the Christmases they enjoyed growing up. I've been fortunate to work most of my career in multiple staff situations, rector of large parishes, as dean of a seminary, as dean of a cathedral, and in those places we tend to pass the big holiday preaching duties around. So it's safe to say that over the years, I've heard my share of Christmas sermons with their attendant stories of big holiday dinners, tales of working on the yearly Christmas pageant, and even one or two yarns about dysfunctional family gatherings around the holidays. There's even been a small miracle or two thrown in. I really have come to love these stories, and not only because they're usually so well told, I had a very different experience as of childhood than most clergy had. Not only did I not grow up in the church, I first walked into a church building when I was a freshman in college. Both my parents worked in show business. My dad was an actor in movies, my mother was a costume designer for television. And so the early Christmases I remember took place in very different settings than did those of my colleagues. Instead of, instead of the country church or the blazing fireside, think nightclub or motel room. <laughs> Instead of a big family turkey dinner, think Chinese restaurant. Mind you, I'm not complaining. A little bit of tinsel can do wonders, and as the only kid in the room, I was always fussed over. But I enjoy hearing the anecdotes told by my more conventional colleagues because they give me a very different sense of what the holidays felt like in what we used to call a normal family. When I first came to the church in college, I used to feel a bit sheepish about my lack of a more traditional background. Sure, it had its good side because I first experienced Christianity as an adult. I never had to unlearn the stuff they teach you in Sunday school. But this lack of early nurture in the faith had its downside as well. For one thing, I was at a loss for sermon illustrations. I had no stories about the happy conventional Courier and Ives Christmas. Who wants to hear the preacher tell a heartwarming story about Christmas in Las Vegas? <laughs> you and I live in a culture that celebrates youth and it worries a lot about growing old. But aging has its blessings too, at least for me, and one of the effects of hearing the Gospels read aloud so often over so many years is that occasionally some of the deep truths of Christianity actually begin to sink in. When I was younger, I was embarrassed about my upbringing, and so I tried to hide it. I wasn't one of those clergy who had gone to prep school or had three last names or had grown up singing in the church choir. I was a kid who'd grown up with comics and strippers and actors and jazz musicians. I'd stumbled out of one kind of life and into another. As a young man, I was embarrassed about my background. But the longer I've lived, the more that I've come to see that it's okay. Here's what John says at the beginning of his gospel, the passage we just heard. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. That passage tells us the central proclamation of Christmas. God has taken on human flesh in the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. This is perhaps Christianity's most startling proposition, and it has radical consequences. God became one of us in Jesus. This means at least two things. It means that God now knows what it is like to be us. And it means that who we are and how we live is raised to a new level of divine importance. You and I matter. God feels our joy and God feels our pain. The one we pray to knows what our life feels like. And more than that, all human life, all human experience is important and holy because all human beings are holy. By becoming one of us in Jesus, God blessed and transformed all of human life. And this blessing and transformation are at the heart of what Christmas means. Your life your joys, your sorrows, your work, your relationships, your story, all what makes you you matters because of what happened that morning in Palestine 2,000 plus years ago. When we preachers complain about what Christmas has become in our culture, we do so not because it has become commercialized. We do so because Christmas has become trivialized. We have made of it too light a thing. Sure, the silly ties and the Santa hats and the ugly sweaters are fine, but we should also be out on the street stopping traffic and giving people the good news that God has become one of us in Jesus, that their lives are now changed and charged with divine significance, and that it is okay for them to be who they are. It's taken me 50 years of living with this story to understand not only its depth, but also its implications. As John says at the close of today's gospel, and the word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. That life is the life of all people, and it is available to us, whoever we are and wherever we come from. God has taken you into the divine mystery. You are now part of it. Who you are, where you are from, your story, your past, your future, all of them are holy and blessed and good. Christmas comes in cathedrals, in coal mines, in country churches and aboard ships, in lighthouses and in nightclubs. Whether you have three last names or four first names, whether you grew up in church or on the streets, whether you live in a happy or a dysfunctional household, whether you're at the top of your game or just trying to keep it together, Christmas is for you. 
In saying yes to Jesus, God has said yes also to you. It is good and right to be who you are. Do not let somebody else's vision of the perfect Christmas or the perfect Christian get in the way of your taking in the depth and passion of God's love for you. In John's words, the, the word has become flesh and lived among us, full of grace and truth. In Charles Dickens' words, let each of us have a kinder word for one another these days than any other time in the year. In my own words, God knows and loves and accepts you as you are, really as you are. Merry Christmas. Amen.